Welcome to the CFITrainer.net podcast. Today, we're going to chat with one of the leaders in fire investigation, Dr. James Quinteri. Maybe better known as Dr. Q. Dr. Quinteri earned his PhD in mechanical engineering from NYU in 1970. The year after, he joined the National Bureau of Standards, which we now know as NIST. After 18 years at NIST, where he was the chief of the Fire Science and Engineering Division, he left to become a professor at the University of Maryland and was their John L. Byron Chair in Fire Protection Engineering for many years. He's now a professor emeritus. His research has included compartment fire behavior, fire-induced flows, and fire growth. He's written three foundational textbooks in the profession, including Principles of Fire Behavior, and has been published over 200 times in journals and reports. He's a fellow in the Society of Fire Protection Engineers and a past recipient of their Arthur B. Guise Medal, recognized for his eminent achievements in the advancement of the science and technology of fire protection engineering. You've seen him on CFITrainer.net, taking you through the classic candle experiments first devised by Michael Faraday in 1848 as a series of lectures to the Royal Institution of Great Britain. Today, he's here to look back and look forward as we trace the history of fire research and the challenges that lie ahead. Dr. Q, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Rod. Hey, we're glad to have you back again on the podcast. Last time we talked, I think it was uh, 2016, and we talked about everything from your love of the Mummers Parade to your thoughts on the World Trade Center. We talked a little bit about America's burning, America burning, and you were beginning some work on batteries, and you were uh, starting some work also, I think, on zero gravity. This year, we wanted to have you back on the podcast because we thought we'd focus, uh, with our focus this year on technical topics in the modules that we're doing for the network, that it'd be a great time to look at where we've come from and where we might be going. So let's start with a little history. You've been in uh, this for quite some time, I think 50 years. And when you started in 1971, why don't you tell us a little bit about that job and, and what it was like as an engineer? Well, when I started in 1971, it was at uh, the National Bureau of Standards, which is now NIST. And uh, they were forming a central fire program. Eventually, it became a unified program among three. And they were hiring people. And the hiring went up to, at one point, 120 research uh, and, and staff people. So it was a relatively big group for fire, and uh, most of us knew nothing about fire. I would su suspect almost everybody knew nothing about fire. Uh, at the same time, there was a National Science Foundation research uh, effort going on that came from America Burning, and they were spending uh, $2 million a year then uh, on research grants to universities and other research laboratories, and they would handle about 50 grants a year. Wow. So that was a relatively big program. Uh, you know, it, it, it's low dollars now, but it was, it was big stuff then. And the budget of the fire program was only about $3 million. So you can, you can see that academia and uh, science laboratories played a big, big role. So I would say that uh, all of us, uh, including academia, learned over the uh, first half of the decade in the 70s. 
I really appreciate you putting that in context because that's that's pretty amazing. Two million dollars going into the research and then three million going into the fire program. When you say into the fire program, what do you mean specifically? Uh, that was the budget of the fire program at NIST, which which grew at, at till in 1975 to about uh, 120 people. John Lyons was the uh, head of that program. John came from Monsanto. And John later uh, rose to become um, head of the National Bureau of Standards. And Unfortunately, you... he was the first political uh, loss because the Clinton administration wanted to replace him. Uh, and that was the first time a director had ever been under a political uh, change. Yeah, well, the politics always have a way of weaving their way in, huh? Yes, but John Lyons laid the the groundwork because uh, he, he even wrote a book published by the, uh, uh, I think, Smithsonian on fire. So John was learning, too, uh, with all of us. So there, there was no kind of uh, uh, a stigma if you said you didn't know anything about fire. We were all in the same boat and learning as much as we could. So what, what were some of the questions being investigated? Uh, the biggest problem at that time was that uh, fires were appearing to kill more people. And it looked as if there was 8,000 deaths a year in the U.S. from fire. And they were mainly residential or in special uh, occupancies, like nursing homes and things like that. And so uh, that came out of America burning. So that was the impetus of this. And uh, both Democrats and Republicans were 100% for the fire program. Interesting. Uh, the, the committee that oversaw them had, had a Democrat, you know, in the, uh, major, you know, major minority, uh, uh, Bollard and uh, a guy from Pennsylvania. Uh, they... They really uh, supported the program, even through the Reagan years, where Reagan tried to cut it for eight years. So during the Reagan years, in the 80s, uh, the program was under the axe each year. But the bipartisan uh, congressional people always restored it. It's always been great to see that bipartisan cooperation, a lot of the things that we do uh, with first responders. So... Uh, I'm yes, sorry. Fires always had fires always had that, uh, uh, but what also fire deals with regulation ultimately. So if you do advanced safety, you may change your regulation, and if you change your regulation, you you know that the climate is such that people don't want changes in regulations or new ones. the 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 thing that people really don't realize is that if you change the, the regulations for fire and it was scientifically accepted all around the world, then you would have universal standards. And companies would not have to pass a test in Germany and a different one in France and a different one in DOE and a different one for NASA. There would always be the same test. And so industry doesn't realize that or doesn't have enough confidence in regulators to uh, believe that that could ever happen. But that's what should happen. 
Yeah, that sounds like a, a an idealistic and, and beautiful thing. I, I guess idealistic isn't even appropriate. It just sounds well, like the right thing to have happened. But we can't even get states in a lot of cases, you know, to agree. Well, when, when the European Union was formed, what they first set out to do was harmonize everything. And they tried to harmonize the, the uh, fire regulations. And they did to some extent. But politics entered in in the end. And they they picked the test out of out of a political sense for materials, rather than going to a scientific test that could be a better basis for going forward. So even though the European Community recognized that they had to harmonize for fire, they they took a step backwards, in my opinion. Hmm. So with what you were working on. What's changed the most in our understanding of fire behavior and structures over your career? Like, what did you think was true in 1970 that's radically changed today? And, and how did that happen? I think what's happened is, and what the investigators grab onto, is uh, little bits of formulas that allow them to calculate something and uh, more clear explanations of how things burn and how smoke moves and... Uh, how it affects people and things. So there's a there's a greater scientific grounding, and th- this is uh, epitomized in the uh, Society of Fire Protection handbook that was actually uh, put together, I think, around 1984 in the U.S. The Japanese had one in 1980, and. Uh, it incorporated uh, much of the scientific advances from the 70s to the mid-80s uh, and before, because the British and the Japanese were working on fire before the U.S. And so it, it, uh, it accumulated a, a lot of stuff, and it put it together so that uh, people could uh, look at fire as not a mystical thing, but uh, having some basis in uh, science. Uh, things were there were some predictive tools, and uh, there were better explanations. Uh, all of that is now thrown into 921 by uh, opinions of people around the table. So if they just use 921 to reference some good solid textbooks, it might be a lot more uniform in the way 921 speaks. Okay. So what do you think's been the most profound what have been the most profound uh, advancements in fire research during your career? I think just that 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 you accumulated engineering knowledge. If you look to any other field in engineering, uh you will see that that forms the basis of it. Okay. Now, uh some somebody else might say computational methods, but all engineering, civil uh mechanical, uh, nuclear, electrical, they all have very fancy equations that can't be solved, but they have simpler ones that apply to limited situations. So today now with big computers, people gravitate toward the the, uh, computational methods based on the fancy equations. Sorry to interrupt, go ahead. But but this, even even though it, it uh, gives some semblance of reality, it doesn't always include all the important features. 
So it's much better to have a formula that was specifically designed through experiments and other rationale for one purpose than to have uh, a general device that tries to predict everything because it doesn't do a job, a good job at predicting everything. So some people might say computational methods. Now, if we advance 100 years from now, maybe that will be true, but it's still not likely because when you solve something on a computer, you break it up into little pieces. And we all know that ultimately there's the molecules at the smallest piece. And there's some phenomena that occur on a very small scale. In other words, the flame itself is of the order of a millimeter thick. So if your little piece in the computer is uh, much bigger than a millimeter, you're not even looking at a real flame. You would have to make it, uh, you know, one hundredth of a millimeter to resolve what's going on in the flame. So that's that's the issue with computers. So as with anything, the data and how it gets put in and how it gets calculated or whatever the algorithms are. It's, it's not just the data, uh, Rod. It's the model itself because there's no question the computer is solving the basic equations. But uh, if some phenomena uh, is occurring at a, uh, a level that the computer can't see because the, gr the grid work of the computer is too big, then you're uh, deceiving yourself. And what you have to do in the computer model is is trick 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 it into saying I'm really seeing a flame when I'm not really seeing a flame. Well, I was gonna. That was where I was leading to. So, what your later, what your more recent uh, feelings are about what we're doing in computer modeling? Yes, I mean it's a it's another tool, but people have to recognize uh, you know how it looks. I mean, I was at a meeting last summer in the Canary Islands, and usually in the summer I, I spend time at technical meetings in nice places like that. Good. But it's also uh, very rewarding, and there were two people there looking at uh, turbulent flames, which is what every fire is. And one person was looking at it from a computer point of view, where that lady could only solve the problem over a little, a few seconds, because she was really at a tiny, tiny pieces in her computer, where another guy was looking at stuff experimentally. And they th came to the same conclusion that a turbulent flame is a mixture of uh, unburned stuff, pre-mixed flames, diffusion flames, and other stuff beginning to ignite again. So it's a very complex beast, and for a computer to try to generate that is, is beyond the state of the art for normal engineering applications. I understand. It seems as though it's gotten better. I mean, I have seen some pretty interesting modeling done related to, for instance, fire flow that, fell, that followed along with things that I had seen done uh, in a more physical way. Yes, the fluid mechanics of fire, uh, a computer does an excellent job with. The, the fluid mechanics of fire, but when you get to the heart of the fire and how things burn, uh, there are weaknesses. Hmm.
So do you want to talk about that or would you like to talk about some of the research questions and projects that have most interested you? Well, to me, uh, what, what happened in fire is you, you had this uh, government putting the screws on a program like NIST in the 80s. And then in the late 80s, it kind of uh, reached a different equilibrium. From a point of view of like 120 people, it went down to 50. And so it stayed like that, and it's even less than that now for the fire people. So the program has atrophied. And and anytime you, you know, atrophy like that, you can't work on all these issues. So... Uh, what now I think takes hold is any place they can get funding that's in a practical domain. So basic research for fire is really almost zeroed out, except for NASA money that uh, 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 give you know is applied toward fire in a microgravity environment. Now the National Science Foundation does recognize fire now but it's a small part of their budget. So people in academia can do some fire research, but where I told you last time there were 50 grants, there might be less than 10 today. Hmm. And, and so this is not an advance, this is going backwards. So, so what you have is more people applying stuff, more people learning about fire. Uh, the, the amount of universities uh, and uh, uh, community colleges uh, around the world teaching fire has grown enormously. South America, Asia, Europe, really grown enormously. So we're spreading the knowledge base, but we're we're not really advancing the field uh, in any basic way. Uh, so that that's what's lacking. I guess I'm happy to hear that at least the bar is being raised. Um, and... Yeah, the bar. The, 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 that is that is one of the big things that the investigators did because in the 90s they began to recognize that there were some engineering tools that they could grab onto and they could learn from and so the investigators ha have done one of the best jobs uh in uh, adopting uh science now if you look at regulators or people that have to deal with fire safety uh, through rules and, you know, standards, they haven't adopted that at all. And the only way you adopt that is by having a central government uh, kind of uh, over, oversee it. I guess in some ways we're seeing some of that work being done by UL with Dan Madrakowski. Uh, yes, again, but that that's a spinoff of the... Uh, firefighter program and the fact that uh, Steve Edwards and some other people got a few million dollars for basic research out of the grant that is something like, uh, I don't know, $500 million. You know what that grant is. Right. What is, the overall, what is the overall U.S. Fire Administration grant annually to fire department? I'm not sure. I know there are different, you know, there are different areas of it. Um, that are specific to either people or research or some of the things that we're doing for fire prevention and safety, but I'm, I'm not a guy to go to. Yeah. Fires. So 
yes, fortunately, there's stuff like that. But again, it's very applied. It's not looking at uh, fundamentals. Uh, and I don't downgrade it. I think what they're doing is fantastic. But I'm just saying that in the 70s, there was a focus on fundamentals, and the field grew from that. If you don't have that continuing, you plateau. I get it. Well, we can hope for more of it in the future. I guess I'm... Yes, I'm... I mean, there, there, there has to be advocates. People in fire uh, uh, investigation have to say, we want more people to study this. People, uh, firefighters have to say, we want more people to study this. So as firefighters uh, start to adopt some scientific principles for fire, they, they will be enlightened. I mean, there's several books that go to firefighter training schools, uh, I think mine among them, uh, that try to translate that information. But it, it's a hard sell. Because to understand a lot of this, you have to at least be a bachelor engineer. It does seem like they're transferring some of that knowledge. I do see uh, a lot of training on the ground and some training online where they stop talking about pushing fire, for instance. You know, where, they, where they're starting to look more at firefighter tactics and, and where the scientific method and, and, and those things, as you said before, are being followed more and more on a regular basis by fire investigators. Well... The, uh, it's interesting you say tactics because one of the fire programs that began at NBS in the 70s, there were three programs. One was looking at flammable uh, clothing. One was looking at fire and buildings. And the other was looking at fire and the firefighter. So they were developing uh, better clothing for the fire service, mm -hmm. better helmets, uh, and they were looking at tactics, but tactics is a debatable subject, and that program got killed. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. I, I, I do know, I, I mean, I, I have seen them doing work, like as you said, on clothing and helmets and shields and that kind of thing, uh, and I have seen some work being done on, on the tactics, and uh, I, I think most yes. of the time we see it, it's, it's about being safer, uh, instead well, of going well, it's into come, it, it's come back now. Now, now it's okay to look at that because the firefighters are realizing that hey, we should take a more technical look at this. But in the seventies, that program only lasted about, I'd say, from nineteen seventy to nineteen seventy-eight. Well, I'm glad it's back. So during y yes, y yes, and Dan Madrakowski uh, uh, and uh, uh, Steve Steve uh, uh, Kerber. Uh, Kerber, uh, you know, take credit for that, I think. Well, I'm glad that they're doing that work as well. So over the years when you've been working in research, can you think of something that most interested you or, or something that most surprised you that you want to share? I mean, I, you know, some people in research only look at one little issue. And as an aside, that's why NIST wasn't capable of looking at the World Trade Center, because they had a bunch of specialists, and they couldn't see the forest through the trees. Uh, so not to diminish their expertise, but they didn't see the big picture. Where some people work on a lot of things, and I'm, I'm one of those. 
So I worked on a lot of aspects of fire uh, because the, the totality of the field and the physics of the field appealed to me. Uh, I would say one of the things that is still not fully uh, explained is the uh, phenomena of flashover. And I gave a, a talk on this several years back at one of the IAAI meetings. And even among scientists, they can't agree. And uh, uh, Pat Kennedy even wrote a paper on this saying, look at all these different definitions, uh, which said that people didn't understand it because there were too many definitions and they were you know, not really totally compatible. So uh, I think flashover is, is an issue. It, it, in fact, flashover is an instability, and so is the virus. Yeah, I, I, I'm hearing you in both places. So I've heard conversations for years about flashover, and I've seen investigators and firefighters say it flashed over, it didn't flash over. <laughs> it, it, the definition of yeah. flashover is obviously uh, fluid. Yeah, um, but if you put uh, thermocouples in a room and um, watch the thermocouples after the fire and see where the thermocouples suddenly jumped to a higher level, right? that's the instability. That's the onset of flashover. So uh, it's not fluid. It's got a, it has a pretty rock-solid definition, I guess, the, the point being that a lot of rooms that investigators yeah, go into... There's, there's, there's a jump. Ignition is an instability. There's a jump from nothing to a fire. Uh, so, and what put the, puts the brakes on the jump is that the fire runs out of air. So right. it, it caps itself. Uh, that whole process is governed by the heat flow to materials that are burning and the heat loss in the room. If the heat being produced is basically equal to the heat loss, the temperature will go up very slowly. And then when the stuff burns out, it'll decay very slowly. So there's no flashover in that. But if, if the energy produced in the room is greater than the ability to lose the heat, then that energy stays inside the room and makes the temperature go up. And that's a feedback effect that makes this thing take off. Got it. It's exponential. So what do you think are the most interesting challenges facing us as we move ahead? What should we be looking at? The, vi the virus. Because if you go to the virus and you look at the rate at which you are making contact with other individuals, being transporting the virus, and you look at the rate at which people are recovering from the virus or dying, if those two rates are the same, everything is in equilibrium. You're infecting people, and they're recovering or dying, and they're all equal, and there's no change. But if, if you have greater contact than the recovery mode, this thing starts to go exponential. And what puts the brakes on? Well, you run out of population. 
Yeah, it's, it's a, a very similar. It's a very similar phenomenon. It's an instability. If you start making the recovery better, you 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 will have more recovered than are infected, and the infections will go down to zero eventually. And you you can express this this for the virus by a R number, and if and and if that R number is greater than one. We're t- the virus is winning. If R is less than one, then the virus is going away. Yeah, I've seen now, some. We don't, we don't even we don't even have a simple idea like that for flashover. So the virus is a little simpler than flashover. I wish it felt that way today. I know you've uh, you've done quite a bit of work trying to track what's going on and and I've found uh, what you've what you've delivered and I think a lot of other people have to be very interesting and uh it, it's it's a nature of my curiosity I mean that, that that's it So what still excites you about your work in fire Well I'm working on microgravity fire and microgravity and I'm working on batteries right now So what does fire and microgravity mean to someone who doesn't well, know like me What very easy. If if you see a candle burning on the earth, you know it has a pointy flame. If you were on a space station or a spacecraft where there's no gravity and you could be floating around, mm-hmm. the flame on the candle will be a sphere. Interesting. All right? So that's very, very different. And the flame on the earth actually has motion to it because... As this hot stuff goes up, cold stuff comes into the flame. Not in space. Everything moves by diffusion. There's really no discernible motion. It's all diffusion. So what does that mean to somebody? uh, I'm guessing that certainly relates to people who might be at the space station. We have experiments going on right now on the space station with a burner where we emulate uh, real things burning. And when we got this contract, people said uh, what we're doing is a joke and wasting money for NASA. And uh, they said that you will never get any steady flames on your burner. We all know that the fires will go out in microgravity. Well, we did 60 experiments and half of them the flames uh, burned for as long as five minutes until we shut them off. Uh, And uh, we could show that they were steady flames. Interesting. So that you're saying that's from diffusion. You want to expound on that a little? Yes. I mean, diffusion is, uh, you know, you, you walk past some flowers and you feel you smell an odor. That odor came to you in still air by diffusion. Got it. So, or, what is what is the goal in this case? You know, you, if you're getting criticism about uh, about, well, I'll let you go. What the goal the goal is is if if we understand how to predict burning in microgravity, whether it takes twenty uh, percent oxygen or forty percent oxygen to make it happen. Uh, we lay lay a better groundwork for fire safety. In addition, we lay a better groundwork for how to select materials. 
because materials burn according to their properties. So if we can predict how things burn in microgravity, we have to put in material properties to assess that. And those properties can be measured on the Earth. Now, now if you look at the, the test standard that NASA uses, and NASA, you might say, is aerospace. But if, if you go in the Department of Transportation itself, which is airplanes, buses, you know, rail cars, automotives, each one of those modes has a different test method for materials, including NASA, which is unique to itself. Now, how do they all relate to each other? I'm not, I'm not going to answer that because <laughs> they don't. And, and so th this is what's wrong with fire safety. We're, we're, we're addressing fire safety based on very primitive uh, ideas for what makes uh, a material bad or good. Okay. The way, the way that I keep hearing things is, you know, hey, we're making ho homes out of lighter, cheaper materials. Um, they have much bigger rooms. Uh, there's, you know, unexpected airflow or chemicals that are very dangerous. It seems mm. like, you know... Uh, no. No, that, that, that... Look... Frank Lloyd Wright designed a home for poor people uh, way back in his day. Uh, and he designed it such that the kitchen was on the ground floor and you climbed through a hatch into the upper floor where your bedroom was. And the whole thing was lined with wood paneling because it looked nice. So uh, even back then, with normal materials, people were not recognizing the nature of fire hazard. Now, what changed in homes, and changed, that changed in the 60s when plastics emerged, and you had all these products from, instead of going from wool and cotton, you had uh, nylon, polyester, polypropylene, polyethylene. You had all these different, uh, you know, uh, oil-based uh compounds that were now being used in different ways in the home. And, and so you saw different fires. So when technology changes, the, the whole groundwork for fire safety changes. It, this, this is happening now with the batteries. Well, that was going to be my next question because you had mentioned your work on batteries. Would you like to discuss a little bit about your research? Well, my research started a uh, with the FAA, and the FAA Technical Center at Atlantic City has done probably the most work on battery safety that any place else has done. Also, uh, Los Alamos, that, that group, they're very theoretical. But uh, FAA has looked at, you know, battery safety for aircraft and transporting, transporting batteries on aircraft. So they've made some advances. So I did some work there, and the idea was is, you know, just like flashover, batteries have this phenomenon called thermal runaway, which means if the battery gets tweaked in a certain way, all hell breaks loose inside the battery and energy starts being released unbelievably fast. 
So if you heat up a battery and monitor its temperature, it will do the same thing that fire in a room does. It will go up very, very slowly as you're heating the battery, but it will get to some point where suddenly it jumps and takes off and consumes everything in the battery. Yeah, it's a scary thing, and we're... Uh, and we... they, that's called thermal runaway, but it, it's like a flashover phenomena, and and it, it stops when you burn up all the stuff in the battery. Uh, so it, it's batteries are made of materials that have the same attribute as the ammonium nitrate that blew up in Texas City in 1948 and blew up in... Beirut uh, a few uh, months ago. They're exothermic. You heat them, they decompose, and when they decompose, they give off heat. Scary thought, especially considering we put them, we're putting them into our cars, and uh, that's yeah, some of the but, modules that we're doing for CFI Trainer this, this year. But again, Rod, we put gasoline in cars. Excellent point. Hydrogen yeah, too, so, huh? Yes, I have a good friend who's been working on hydrogen, and, and you can make technology safe if you recognize it. And uh, and if the industry that, that sells those products decides that they want it to be safe, not just marketable. Well, it seems like that's happening more. I guess we'll have to see how things evolve here. And uh... We'll see, but usually industry doesn't uh, regulate themselves. Let's, uh, let's close out on a positive note about the role and value of new research and, uh, and how it might help the average fire investigator. What do you, what do you want to see and well, uh, what do you see in the future? I would like to see the fire service get smart. I would like to see the fire service say, we need to understand this problem more. And, uh, and therefore, we need to study this, 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 and that. And I'd, I'd, I'd like to see the, the, uh, the advocation of uh, fire research uh, come from uh, a new fire service that starts to appreciate science, which is sometimes not appreciated in today's times. Well, I think it's a hard sell. Yeah, I think it's always a hard sell, and it's always easy to buy equipment and and go out and feel like you're getting more under control. And science moves slower than a lot of the guys and gals that are out there doing fire. So, uh, but I I do see it uh, transferring, and I do see the work that you've done making a difference in some of the things that are being uh, done out there in the fire service. So, I have more positive thoughts. Um, if you had to pick one more positive thoughts, I, I feel better about it than, than I hear you uh, addressing Yes, we've come a long way. Fire, uh, the knowledge we have about fire is uh, really, really uh, grown, and, and it can be used. Uh, but I say there's more to be done, and I, I would look to the fire service as the key in... Uh, making fire safety better. So if you could pick one thing for fire investigators, one piece of research that you'd love to be able to do, let's close out on that. We spent, we spent uh, uh, for the last 50 years looking at the way fire starts in the room. 
rather than once the room is fully involved, how does it affect the structure? Okay. And uh, that's one of the reasons why the World Trade Center fell down. Okay, so you'd like to have a more general look at, as you just described, once yes, once the fire is uh, engulfed uh, into in an actual building. So that's interesting. Yes, the, there's there's aspects of fire that ha, that are pushed under the rug. Structural people don't even care about fire. If you go out to the design of the World Trade Center, they said they designed it so if an airplane hit it, it wouldn't fall down. But they forgot about the fuel on the airplane. So those guys that were supposed to be so great in structural design totally didn't even consider the fuel burning and lighting the building on fire. I mean, it's like that's the kind of ignorance you have people making batteries, wanting them to be better and better, knowing that they could run away. But what they're driven by is they want to make a bigger and better and cheaper battery. So you need to have some people look at this. Now, who has that responsibility? The fire service. Ultimately, it's the fire service because they have to go put out when things, you know, deal with it when things go wrong. Yeah. The investigator is ancillary to that. Sure, they do it too, but it's the fire service. Things go wrong, they have to deal with it. Yeah, it's tough. It's sort of, uh, it is an interesting thought you bring up that, you know, a lot of our research is being done by the exposure of fire uh, to people instead of perhaps, or to to the fire service instead of uh, perhaps in the research that could have been done in advance. you, you mentioned exposure to people. We dropped that subject in the 80s, and that was political too. PTFE, Teflon, was at the root of it. And uh, we, we can stop there, Ron. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you very much, Rod, for this opportunity to ventilate. I'm going to go see if my pies are done. Maybe they're all burned, and then I'm going to curse you out. So. Well, be careful when you open that door, all right? All right. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Dr. Q. You be well. Stay, stay safe, Rod, and oh, stay safe, everybody. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Dr. Q is always a fascinating interview. Interesting guy, and uh, I love his passion and appreciate his time with us today. Now for some news from the IAAI. The IAAI is offering new training live and online. Soon the live online training will be integrated into CFI Trainer, and your IAAI membership will offer more benefits through discounts on training and better reporting of the work you have completed. Also new is the IAAI's office location. The office was closed yesterday and today, uh, and the staff is moving and uh, they're getting everything set up to better serve you down the road. Speaking of down the road, the new location, from what I understand, is just down the road. This podcast and CFITrainer.net are made possible by funding from a fire prevention and safety grant from the Assistance to Firefighters Grant Program administered by FEMA and the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. There's also support from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives 
and voluntary online donations from CFITrainer.net users like you and podcast listeners as well. Thanks for joining us today on the podcast. Stay safe. We'll see you next time. For the International Association of Arson Investigators and CFITrainer.net, I'm Rod Ammon. <laughs>